Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Well, I don't know about you, but I am glad to be in the season of Advent after two months of looking at all of our cultural issues, which I find, in a way, sort of depressing. How did that song from Hee Haw go? Woe is me, agony on me, deep dark, yeah. So we come to the season of what? Hope and joy and peace and love. And what a refreshing change it is. You know, growing up for me, uh, hope was a ship, a ship that set out from the United States on a 10 to 12 month cruise and emblazoned on the side of it said H-O-P-E. How many of y'all remember that? Hope. You know, it was a hospital ship that was part of Project Hope that operated from 1960 to 1974. Originally, it had been a Navy Haven-class hospital ship that had served at the end of World War II and throughout the Korean War. And interestingly enough, the name of it was the USS Consolation. It was in service, actually, from 1945 to 55, and it earned 10 battle stars during the Korean War. But in 1958, William Walsh convinced President Eisenhower that there was a need for a ministry to other nations, a health ministry. And President Eisenhower made sure then that this ship was transferred out of mothballs to Walsh and his foundation called Hope Opportunities of People Everywhere, H-O-P-E. It was a 15,000-ton ship that originally had had 802 beds. It was refitted so that it had a pharmacy and three surgical operating rooms with closed-circuit TV, air conditioning, radiology, and an isolation ward. Had 150 nurses and 100 doctors. And as I said earlier, they would go out on a 10-month cruise and provide health care to a nation from offshore and would also teach healthy medical practices to their colleagues in that country. They went to Indonesia first and then to South Vietnam, Peru, Ecuador, Guinea, Nicaragua, Colombia, Sri Lanka, Tunisia, Jamaica, and then Brazil was the last. Now Project Hope, you probably know, does not operate out of the ship. It was mothballed again in 74, and now it operates off the land, and they serve 26 countries today. They are ministering around the periphery of the Ukraine and those countries that are helping to handle the refugees right now. They minister to people in disasters and health crises. They have ministered in about 36 counties in the United States during the COVID crisis. They treat infectious and non-communicable diseases and provide maternal and neonatal and child health care, and then, as we said, provide education to doctors in those areas which need to learn about new 
and better health policies. You know, the, the practice and policy of Operation Hope is to do this. It's to give the powerless, the weak, the dispossessed, to give them hope of rescue in their desperate situations. That's what hope is, isn't it? It is hope of rescue from a desperate situation. You know, the Scripture speaks about this kind of hope. We looked at Romans 15 that uh, Sue Ellen read earlier, verses 1 through 15. The background of that, I think, is found in chapter 5. You see the focal text today comes out of 13. You know, Romans, I think, is really divided into a couple of parts. The first 11 chapters deal with the theology that Paul tells us about justification and salvation. And then the last part, chapters 12 through 16, talk about the application of that in his church. The first part in chapter 5 reminds us that the hope of justification, that is the hope produced by justification, the hope that is produced by having been made right as sinners, being made right with God, that hope rescues us and reconciles us. And as a result of that hope, it brings the other candles. It brings peace and joy through the love of Jesus Christ. You see, Romans 5 tells us once when we were hopelessly lost, while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. God rescued us from our desperate situation. We were helpless and we were hopeless, and he rescued us from our sin and the certainty of death because Christ died for us. His shed blood then did what? It made us who were enemies with God, friends with God. It reconciled us and brought us then back into friendship with God and promises us to save us and to give us eternal life. And Romans 5 goes on then to say, having reconciled us because we have peace, another one of the candles, we can now rejoice and have joy in God. But at the beginning of that passage, it says something rather curious. It says, because of all of this that I'm about to tell you, we rejoice. We rejoice not because everything's easy, but we rejoice in what? Tribulation. We rejoice in tribulation because in a strange sort of way, this helplessness, this hopelessness, this difficult situation, whatever problem we find ourselves in, the tribulation that comes actually helps us. It helps to bring us greater hope and joy, as we will see in just a few minutes from today's application in the scripture from chapter 15. So then we come to chapter 15 and we see the practical application of this. You see, it shows us how this hope of justification that is in chapter 5, this hope produced by justification works in and through the church. How does it work through the church? Well, the beginning of the passage that Sue Ellen read tells us that through the church, we then give hope to others. Take a look at it again, verses 1 through 3. We're not about pleasing ourselves. Because we have been justified, because we've been made right with God, it is our responsibility, those that God has made strong in faith, to do what? To help those that are weak. To bear the weaknesses and the helplessness of those that are 
hopeless and helpless. It's not about us, we're told, as a church, because we've been reconciled. You see, we don't seek to please ourselves, but we please others. Not in a man-pleasing way, but we deny ourselves to build others up. And it goes on to say, just as Christ did this, even though he was rejected, even though he was reproached on behalf of God by sinners, he bore their reproaches, the, the reproaches and their ridicule so that he might reconcile them to God. So we see in the first part of this passage that God works his hope through the church to strengthen others. What I want to look at today is the last part of the passage, verses 4 through 13, or verses 6 through 13. It describes how hope functions in the church. As we've lit the hope candle today, what does that represent for us in the church as we go to provide hope for those that are outside the body, hope among the, the faithful? But before we get to verse 6, I want to read verses 4 and 5 and then skip down to 13. So if you would stand together with me as we read God's word, beginning in verse 4 and then 5 and then in verse number 13, we re reiterate what was read earlier. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have what? Hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And then he talks about that unity and that affirmation of one another in the body in verses 6 through 12. And then he sums it up in verse 13. And you see most of the candles of the Advent wreath included. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. From this passage, we see that hope comes out of tribulation and faith. Hope is born. Tribulation and faith give birth to hope. Secondly, we see that beyond that, then, we feed. Hope feeds on something. In the first part of the passage that we read today, just a moment ago, we see that hope feeds on God's encouragement and the encouragement of His Scripture, His Word. So hope is born of tribulation. It feeds on the encouragement of God and His Word. And then in the last verse that we read, we see that hope increases. It abounds. And hope abounds through two things a believing kind of peace, and a believing kind of joy. The first of these points, hope is born of tribulation and faith, so that through perseverance, he says in verse number four, through perseverance and the scriptures, but through perseverance we might have hope. I think there are a couple of key points here. First, God uses tribulation to make us strong. God uses tribulation to make us strong. And Godly hope, then, relies on something as he's making us strong. What does it rely on? It relies on faith. So those two points I want to review. Before we do that, I want to talk about what hope is not. Hope is not people living in ease and comfort. You see, people living in ease and comfort need no hope for something better. They're satisfied. 
You see, for those that live in ease and comfort all the time, their so-called hope without tribulation isn't really hope at all. It's really presumption. It's a kind of self-reliance. It's a kind of privileged life of entitlement that encounters no crises, and they're happy as a clam until the crisis hits, and then what happens? They snap. I know that's a mixed metaphor. I know clams don't snap. But you get the point. You know, when things are all fine and copacetic, we don't really have a need for hope. Hmm. You see, people that live these kinds of lives are not resilient. It reminds me of the example that I've shared with you before about fat telephone poles. You don't see fat telephone, you don't see many telephone poles anymore with all the wireless and all of the cables under the ground. But, you know, in the olden days when we had wooden telephone poles, you didn't see many fat telephone poles. Why? Because those are the trees that grow down in the valley. They grow down right next to the river. They grow down below the top of the tree line where the wind doesn't blow. And they're not strong inside. What they, do, what they used to do when they would harvest trees to make telephone poles, they went to the top of the tree line on the side of the hill where the wind of adversity blew those trees all the time, and they weren't very big, but they were strong and dense. You see, the wind of adversity does the same thing to our core being. It strengthens us. The brokenness of difficulties and problems, they can strengthen us. Adversity can strengthen us. Doctors tell us that the strongest part of an an arm bone, when it is broken, is that part that is healed, where it has knitted together. It is stronger than any other part of the bone. Adversity can make us stronger. Living a life of ease and privilege and entitlement is not what God intended for us. He expects us to be able to work through the adversity with his help. See, tribulation exposes our weaknesses. The impossible difficulties that we face make us aware of this. When we encounter them, and we all do, we're reminded that we're not self-sufficient. We must rely on one who is greater. We draw near to God, who is our ultimate and supernatural source of strength. So it leads to the first point, then, that we made a moment ago. God uses tribulation to make us strong, to accomplish three things, I think from this passage, to make us more resilient, to be built up, to strengthen our emotional muscles, to strengthen our spiritual stamina. That's one reason God uses adversity. He allows things to happen to us. Why did God let this happen to me? Well, we can't tell all the reasons. Why did God do this to me? Well, God doesn't do all those bad things to us, but sometimes he lets things happen to us. And we ask that question, well, one of the reasons has to be that he uses it to make us more resilient. He also, secondly, uses this adversity to build character. That means, literally, from the word that is used in a passage early, in the passage earlier in, in, uh, in Romans 5, to build proven character. It means that we have been tested, very much like the assayer that tests gold by putting it through the fire and testing its purity and making it stronger. So he uses adversity to make us resilient, to build our character, and then to deliver hope. 
that, the, that God is faithful, that he will meet us in that adversity. And not only this adversity now, but then when we experience that, we know that when we face it in the future, he will be there. And we, of course, find this summarized in that rather curious passage at the beginning of Romans 5. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, tested character. And proven character brings about hope, and that hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has, whom he has given us. So you see, this tribulation is important not just to strengthen us, but to bring us further hope. You know, soldiers at Fort Jackson going through basic training, even right after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, as they're about to graduate, they go through the most grueling part of their training. They go through real battle conditions that are dangerous, not live bullets, but they go through real battle dangerous conditions so that they might be prepared when they then deploy and they go into battle, they will be ready. Sailors who, who train on glassy, smooth lakes are not prepared when they go to sea and encounter stormy seas. You see, training through adversity prepares us for the problems and difficulties of life. That's one of the reasons that God allows those things to happen to us. You see, he is the God who gives perseverance. He cannot give perseverance, as this passage says, without allowing us to go through the adversity, by allowing us to be tested, and then assuring us that whenever it happens, he will be there. He will be standing by us and going through it with our, through our trials. So the first point is that hope does indeed come out of adversity. We don't need hope without that adversity. The second is... God then allows faith to make us strong. Godly hope relies on that faith. Faith, I think, is the underlying foundational thing, structure underneath hope. You, you know that passage in Hebrews that tells us about the catalog of faith. All of those saints of faith. It begins by saying that faith is what? It's the substance of things, what? Hope for the evidence of things, what? Not seen. Now you think about that. What does it mean to be substance? It is the reality. It is the substructure. It is the underflooring, you see, that is being said there. Faith is the underflooring. It is the underpinning. It is the substructure of hope. You see, God strengthens us by allowing our faith to be tested. We know that James tells us this. The testing of your faith. It's what produces perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect result, the result that God wants for you, so that you can become all that God has made you to be, complete, lacking nothing. You see, our faith must be tested, and in so doing, our hope is as well. This isn't the testing of our knowledge. It's not like at seminary where we have that systematic theology test. It's not that kind of test. It's not the testing of our innate abilities, our skills or our talents, or even our spiritual gifts. It's not the testing of things that are visible, not the testing of things that are quantifiable, not the testing of things that can be scientifically proven. It's the testing of our faith, and our faith looks to the unseen things of God, the invisible qualities and powers of God. Because you see, 
Not only faith that sees isn't faith, but hope that sees things. Hope that focuses on seeing things, the scripture tells us, is no hope at all. In Romans the 8th chapter, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with what? With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You see, the difference is this. There are two kinds of people when it comes to hope and faith. There are people of faith. They realize that life's problems and difficulties, the tribulations of life, are not just physical problems. They're not just everyday, normal monetary problems, marital problems, family problems, relational problems. They are those, but there's something behind all of them, that they are ultimately spiritual issues. There's a spiritual dimension to them. People of faith then trust God to meet those challenges so that they might grow stronger through meeting the challenges. They look to God to help them overcome the difficulties. And when they overcome, they do what? They give God the credit. People of faith never fail then, do they? People of faith never, of course they fail. We don't always succeed. But when we fail, that helps us grow stronger in character. It reminds us that we are imperfect, but we rely on one who is perfect. They can come to our aid in the time of our distress. And even when we fail, we're reminded as our character is built that we're not to lose faith. It strengthens our faith because God helps us through the encounter and promises to be with us the next time it occurs. God never promised us success in every venture, but he always promises to be with us in every encounter. People of little or no faith, however, look at life differently. Let me say this. Hope without faith is simply wishful thinking. That's all it is. Hope without the substructure of faith is just, well, I would like for this to happen. I wish this would happen. And you see, people that live that way trust in themselves and human systems, and they chalk things up to either fate or luck or their abilities. When they win, their egos are inflated, and they have an ever-spiraling sense of self-reliance. And when they fall, and eventually they do, they dismiss it as bad luck or they crash in self-confidence. And ultimately, it leads to despair, maybe not through most of their life, but when they come near to the end of their life and they have no hope beyond that, they are in despair with no hope, without faith in the one who is strong enough to deliver them. We have a choice as people of hope, whether to be people of faith or not. So hope comes out of adversity, and it's built on faith. Secondly, God... God's hope feeds on his encouragement. It says here in verse number five, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. So he's, he's promised he will give it to us. And what is the result? There will be hope. God encourages us. He gives us hope in three ways in this passage. One is through his word, through scripture. Secondly, through his son, Jesus Christ. And he encourages us also, also through his people, the church. Think about the encouragement of God's word. What does it mean when it says that we get encouragement from God's word? Imagine that you are the children of Israel. Imagine the countless pro promises that you encountered in the Old Testament. 
promises that he made, and they were explicitly fulfilled. To Noah, there's going to be a great flood. Noah, get ready for it, and I will deliver you. And then what happened? After the flood, he gave a sign, a sign that we even see today, the rainbow that promises he will never destroy the earth again that way. God's promise. God's promise to Abram. I will give you a son, I, uh, Abram, even though you are 90 plus 9, you are going to have a son. And Sarah laughed. He not only provided the son when he was expected to be a sacrifice, then God provided the ram as a sacrifice. To Abraham, he prophesied, he promised, your children are going to come back, they're going to go to a land into captivity, and they're going to be there about 400 years, but I will deliver them. And that promise was fulfilled. You see, he encouraged his people, page after page, to Moses, I will redeem these people. I will redeem these people by my extended hand and a great many judgments. And that was a euphemism for the plagues that he would bring. And he did. To Isaiah and to Israel, he prophesied, there is going to be a time of captivity. But I tell you, and 150 years before it happened, I tell you, Cyrus, the Persian, will release them. And it happened just as the scripture promised. To Hezekiah, when he became ill, God told Isaiah to tell him, you are ill unto death, but I will spare you and give you 15 more years of life. And he gave him a sign in the sky by the sun retreating 10 degrees. Countless promises of encouragement in the old covenant to his people that were explicitly fulfilled. And then the evidence of his might encouraged them. The Red Sea, about which we spoke last Sunday evening, Parting in two was not just to deliver the Israelites, it was to tell the Egyptians and all of the Canaanites that he was Almighty God, Almighty Lord. It also reassured the Israelites there were only two of them left when they went across the Jordan River. But when Joshua and Caleb look at that flooded river in springtime and they're going to cross it and God says, I'm going to stop it, they knew he could do it. He'd done it before with the sea. You see, he encouraged by his mighty acts the victories that he gave Israel just before and as they entered the promised land assured them, emboldened them that they could conquer Canaan. Defeating the Amalekites with Moses' staff lifted up. Defeating the superior forces of the Amorite kings, Sion and Og in Numbers 21, reminded them that God had done it and he could do it again. Supernaturally bringing down the walls of Jericho When then Joshua defeated the Amorites and the sun stood still until he could finish the victory, God showed through his might words and ways of encouragement. With Elijah standing on the mountain, he brought down fire upon the sacrifice. And then when Elijah was depressed on the mountain when he fled Jezebel, it was the same God of fire and wind and storm that did not speak through those, but he whispered to Elijah, you're not alone. A word of encouragement whispered to him. There's 7,000 more, Elijah, that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Amazing deliverances. He blinded the Syrian army that was approaching Samaria in 2 Kings 6. And then he had Elisha lead them to Samaria. He scattered Ben-Hadad's Syrian army with confusion as they were besieging Samaria a little bit later. Sennacherib's Assyrian army of 185,000. The angel of the Lord struck down one night. Words of encouragement 
mighty deeds of encouragement to God's people. And we can still look back to those and see that God is a God of power and might who stands by us. Then there's the encouragement of his son, the second encouragement. There are over 200 messianic prophecies from the old covenant that are explicitly fulfilled in the New Testament. And we celebrate them at the time of Advent. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be born a child will be born, a, a virgin will give birth to a child, give birth to a son, and we will call him what? Emmanuel, God with us. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and what? Prince of Peace. During this time of Advent, we celebrate the encouragement from the old covenant of the promise of the coming one. Christ is the embodiment of that hope. Just before we started the worship service, I read from uh, Isaiah 40. I read a, a passage related to that. And it says what? Comfort. Oh, comfort ye, my people, Israel, says your God. And then the choir sang about it this morning. The passage that they sang from was from Isaiah 40. Did you listen to the words? A word of encouragement, hope in the coming one who will do what? Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground be made plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And about whom was that speaking? About the Son of God. Simeon's testimony then later says, not only he brings hope, but he, he was the one that was awaiting the consolation of Israel. Paul from prison writes, then, or Paul in prison speaks about the hope of Israel being Jesus Christ. And then to the Colossians, he speaks about him being the hope of glory. So he brings encouragement through his word. He brings encouragement through the person of Jesus Christ, who is our hope and consolation. And he brings encouragement through God's people. He brings encouragement through you, through the body of Christ. And that's what verses 6 through 12 are about. The church then that used to be divided, as he speaks about in Ephesians, is brought together, the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and in this passage, to be of one mind, to speak one voice to the glory of God. He brings together all ethnicities, all kinds of people together into his body, together as the redeemed, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, Jews by God's promise, and Gentiles, that is, all ethnicities by God's mercy. And this extends hope. We are an example, the body of Christ, that, of the hope of God to all nations, to all ethnicities, which is what the word Gentiles really means. And it results in expressions of joy, the passage tells us, exultation, and the result is peace. Peace because we in this body accept each other, no matter where we are from, whether we're from America or from Nigeria, from India or from Romania. From the Ukraine or Russia, together, bound together in Christ, in his peace. You see, the church is God's model of reconciliation, and it's a foretaste of everything that the Advent candles represent, a foretaste of hope and peace and joy through the love of God. Brings me to my last point. 
Not only does God give us encouragement, he allows our hope to increase through peace and joy. Look at verse number 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Advent candle and the wreath are symbolic of that, aren't they? The center candle is called what? The white candle. What do we call that? It's the Christ candle. And it is the source, even though we light it last, we know that it's the invisible source of lighting each one of the others, isn't it? For you see, hope, the candle we lit today, he is, Paul tells Timothy in his first letter to him, he is not only the source of our hope, he is our consolation. Peter tells us that we have a living hope, and it is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Galatians tells us that we therefore bear the fruit of his spirit, which are what? Love, joy, and peace. You see, he is our hope. He is our joy. He said, these words I say unto you that you may have my joy. It'll be in you, and your joy will be what? Complete. And you know what? I'm going away, but I'm coming back, and you'll see me again. And when you see me again, and someday we will, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we will close it by saying this. As often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we celebrate the death of our Lord, the death of Jesus Christ. Until he comes again, we will see him again, and the scripture tells us we will be filled with joy because he is our joy. He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace from Isaiah. He himself is our peace, the peace that has brought the warring parties together into one body, it tells us in Ephesians 2, into the body of Christ. And he gives us peace, his peace, not like the world gives peace but like only he gives peace. He is our love. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing, we are convinced can separate us from what? The love of Christ because he has purchased us with his shed blood. You see, he is our peace, our joy, our hope, and our love. There's further proof of this. Just look around you. And it's the church. It is the body of Christ. We are a reconciled body. We come to the table today. One of the things that I'm going to urge you to remember when we start this is that we do not come to the table without being what? At peace. If you know that a brother has something or a sister has something against you, you do what? You leave your gift at the altar and go immediately and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. If when you stand praying, and we will be as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and prayerful attitudes, when you stand praying, if you realize that you have something against a brother or a sister, do what? Don't go. Right where you are, do what? Forgive them so that your heavenly Father can forgive you. You see, we're a reconciled and unified body at peace, accepting one another and rejoicing to God's glory. Let me close with this. There is such a thing as hope beyond peace and joy. You see, hope without Christ is empty hope. Hope this side of peace. Hope without peace. Hope this side of peace is a peaceless, empty hope. It's an ephemeral wish. Peace, this side of hope, is mere pacification. 
Peace this side of the peace of Christ is when we compromise the world to have peace with the world, and that's not what God would have us do. Hope this side of joy, that is, hope before we experience the joy of Christ, is a joyless kind of empty hope. It's simply unsatisfied desire. It's hope that is simply physical gratification. It's hope that is self-indulgence. It's, it's joy that is worldly happiness with temporary things. You see, that's what joy and peace then bring to us when we have faith in Christ. It goes beyond those things. Hope in Christ goes beyond earthly peace and joy. It pushes the envelope. It causes us further to grow and become stronger in faith. God uses peace and joy then to reinforce and to re-energize our hope. How do these candles work together? It's not just that we experience hope and we experience peace, we experience joy, and we experience love. It's through the love of God then what happens? We begin with faith, and upon that faith we have hope in time of tribulation. And we believe that God will meet our need and come to us and help us. And when he does, and we realize that, we experience what? We experience the peace of God, and we experience the joy of God through the love of God. But it doesn't stop there, folks. You see, this passage says it goes on. He continues to replenish us. You see, it's not just peace and joy. What kind of peace of joy is it spoken about in this scripture? Look at it in verse number 13. It's peace and joy, believing. It's a believing kind of peace. It's a believing kind of joy. So it's not just faith by itself. We have faith. And from that we have hope. And God gives us peace and joy. And we experience a believing peace. A believing joy. And then what God does is he replenishes our faith and strengthens us. So that we abound in hope. Our hope grows. And it feeds our faith. And it literally means we have the most beyondness of hope. A hope that is immeasurable. A hope that abounds and overflows and strengthens our faith. But folks, it's not because we have believed. It's not just because somehow we decided, I'm going to believe and I'm going to choose to follow. You see, none of this would be possible if it weren't because of the faith of Christ that he has given us. The faith of Christ that comes, as it says here, by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this is done through his Holy Spirit. You see, our hope and our faith are fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not one thing that we do that earns merit for our salvation, not even our hope and our faith. It is a God-given gift that comes through the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. So may the peace of God that passes all understanding and the abundant joy of his words promising eternal life strengthen your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ who himself is our encouragement who himself is our comfort who himself is our consolation and hope hope is not just an ideal it's not just an abstract hope is the person Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you walk out today hand in hand with the author of hope. Would you pray with me?
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.